Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Today's battle, Las Navas de Tolosa, of the year 1212, has many times been described as the most decisive battle of medieval Spanish history. For example, the Spanish author, Gonzalo Martínez Díaz, in his biography of King Alfonso VIII of Castile, describes it as, quote, the most decisive battle of the eight centuries of Reconquista, end quote. Francisco García Fritz, in his book entitled Las Navas de Tolosa, discusses this question further, and lists the criteria he believes a particular battle would require to merit such a label. Firstly, there must be a conclusive result for one of the parties involved. Secondly, a so-called decisive battle typically puts an end to a long military conflict and helps determine the outcome of that conflict. Thirdly, the result of the battle has profound consequences, political, socio-economic and cultural, which are long-term and affect a large number of people, including those who were nowhere near the battleground. As such, it often involves the fall of a great power or the birth of a new one. And fourthly, a decisive battle puts an end to a historical phase. Note that I deliberately chose not to name this podcast A History of Europe, Decisive Battles. I would like to leave it to you, the listener, to decide for yourself whether each battle in the series can be called decisive based on the four criteria just listed or whatever criteria you think is appropriate. When I talk about a key battle, what I mean in part is a military encounter that marks a milestone in the story of Europe and its people, whether or not it necessarily changed the course of history. In the next five episodes, I tell the story of Spain and Portugal in the years from 1085 until 1212, dates often used to bookend periods of history of the region. Before 1085, there was little question that it was the local Muslims who had the upper hand in the balance of power. But after King Alfonso VI captured the city of Toledo in 1085, the Christians became much more confident and threatened to rapidly take over the whole peninsula. Why this didn't quickly happen can be explained for two reasons. Firstly, the infighting between Christian rulers, and secondly, the influx of Muslim peoples from North Africa. Firstly, the Almoravids, and later a second group called the Almohads. In the period between 1085 and 1212, there was no one dominant power in Spain, and no one could be sure how the battle for control of the region would turn out. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, in the year 1212, part one of five. In the year 1085, the city of Toledo passed from Muslim control into the hands of the Christian king of Castile and Leon, Alfonso VI. 
the Vincent shockwaves throughout the peninsula, giving encouragement to the Christians and instilling fear among the Muslim leaders. The Muslim kings of Seville, Granada and Badajoz now fully realise that they lack the resources to defend themselves from invasion. For years they had paid the Christians a tribute, a form of protection money by the name of Parias, to avoid being attacked. It was a policy that worked in the short term, but in the long term only provided their foe with more resources to use against them. After the fall of Toledo, it became clear this was no longer a question of border skirmishes or occasional raids, but one of the survival of Islamic rule in Spain. Their only salvation appeared to lie in an appeal to a tribe of fellow Muslims in North Africa, called the Almoravids. It was an act of desperation that would have dramatic results in the following decades. The history of the Almoravid people can be traced back far away from Europe, between rivers Senegal and Niger, approximately in the area of modern-day Mali. There, in the late 9th century, a Berber tribe called the Senhaja, recent converts to Islam, established a power base on the southern border of the Sahara, next to the Empire of Ghana, where they prospered on pastoral agriculture and the trans-Saharan caravan trade routes. In 1035, a chief of the Sanhaja, Yahya ben Ibrahim, on a trip to Mecca, discovered to his dismay that the faith of his tribe had diverged greatly from that of Orthodox Islam. So he employed a theologian by the name of Abdullah ibn Yasin to preach the true faith. Ibn Yasin believed in an exceptionally strict interpretation of Islam, which at first met great resistance. He was forced to flee to the Atlantic coast, accompanied by the few disciples whom he had been able to attract. There he founded a ribat, that is to say a religious community based in a fortress monastery. Ibn Yasin and his followers came to be known as the people of the ribat, al-Murabitun, or in Spanish the Almoravids, which is the name to which they are known today by historians. The followers of Ibn Yasin devoted themselves to ascetic practices while waging war against those who refused to accept their interpretation of the faith. Covering their faces with a veil, they insisted upon a strict observance of Muslim law, condemning the use of wine, the playing of music, taxes not sanctioned by the Quran, and the custom of having more than four wives. This new force of Revivalist Islam began to spread like wildfire, used as it was by the local leaders to achieve some kind of unity to their fragmented society. Their success can be explained to some extent by the lack of alternative strong regional powers at the time. Until recently, the two main rivals for power in the area were the Caliphate of Cordova and the Fatimids in Tunisia. The former had collapsed and had been replaced by a number of small Spanish Taifa kingdoms, none of which had influence across the Straits of Gibraltar. As for the Fatimids, their leaders had recently moved to Egypt, which left open a power vacuum in northwest Africa. In 1059, following a series of military campaigns and having taken advantage of the assassination of his patron Yahya ben Ibrahim, Ibn Yasin compelled 
ordered the Sanhaja peoples to submit to his authority. A new power was born in Western Islam. His successor, Yusuf ibn Tashufin, led his men over the Atlas Mountains to the plain of Morocco. There the Almoravids founded the city of Marrakesh, which became a base for further operations. Yusuf was a highly effective general and administrator, as evidenced by his ability to organise and maintain the loyalty of the hardened desert warriors. He is said to have been of medium height, thin with a little beard, soft voice and black eyes. Under his command, the Almoravids soon conquered Tangier in 1079 and then in 1083 the town of Sueta, on the shore of North Africa, directly opposite Djibouti. The arrival of the Almoravids on the shores of the Mediterranean brought them into contact with the Taifa rulers of Al-Andalus. The contrast between the two cultures could hardly have been greater. The urban rulers of the Spanish Taifas shared the culture of Middle Eastern Islam, which in turn had inherited much from the civilizations of antiquity, while the Almoravids were unsophisticated tribesmen. Yusuf dressed in skins, reeked of camels and spoke Arabic only with difficulty. As a religious zealot, he despised the effete lovers of luxury in Al-Andalus, who had, he believed, strayed from the true faith. The Taifa kings must have realised there was potential dangers in appealing to the military-strong Almoravids, but they thought they had no choice if they were to save Islam in Spain. The Sultan of Seville, Al-Mutamid, is famously said to have remarked that we would prefer to herd camels for the Almoravids than guard the pigsty of Alfonso VI. Twice previously, Yusuf had declined appeals from Al-Andalus, but in 1086 he finally agreed to gather his troops and prepare to cross the strait. The Almoravids arrived in Algeciras in June 1086, it is said 15,000 strong, among them black Africans who beat incessantly on their war drums as they marched across Spain. Yusuf's cavalry was said to have included 6,000 shock troops from Senegal, mounted on white Arabian horses, and camels were also put to use. At Seville they linked up with the Muslim armies of Seville, Granada and Malaga, and headed towards Badajoz. Alfonso VI, on hearing of the invasion, abandoned the siege of Zaragoza, hastily summoned all his men and appealed to Sancho I of Aragon for help. Early in the autumn, Alfonso set out to meet the enemy and engaged them in a major battle at Sagrajas on the 23rd of October. The considerable Christian army of Leonese, Castilians and Aragonese at first were successful in pushing back the armies of the Taifas, but when Yusuf ordered forward his African contingent, the situation was completely reversed. The superior numbers of Muslims were able to envelop and then slaughter their enemy. Just a year after the great success at Toledo, a major Christian army was decimated. Numerous nobles were killed, and King Alfonso VI himself was wounded, and only just managed to flee the battlefield. The victorious Almoravids decapitated all Christians who had died or had been caught prisoner. 
Carts full of severed heads were sent to the principal cities of Al-Andalus to reinforce the news of the Muslim victory. Fortunately for the Christians, Yusuf decided not to pursue the enemy. Hearing of the death of his son and heir, he led his men back to Africa. It was also possible that his losses were such in battle that he could not engage in a prolonged campaign in Spain. Alfonso VI had been beaten badly and his pride had surely suffered a great blow, but he had not lost any territory and still hold on to Toledo. The Taifa kings were emboldened and decided to refuse payment of tribute to the Christians, but were incapable of checking a renewed Christian offensive. El Cid, readmitted to the king's service, conquered Valencia, where he established himself as ruler of the city and surrounding region. Yusuf returned to Spain in June 1089, but this time only Al-Mutamid of Seville and some lesser lords joined with him. On hearing of a large Castilian army heading his way, Yusuf this time decided not to risk battle and to return to Morocco. The year after he returned once more, but this time to attack not the Christians, but the Muslim rulers of Spain. His contact with the rulers of Al-Andalus had persuaded him that they were impious libertines and corruptors of public morals, unworthy of their positions. It was the religious duty of the Almoravids to replace them with true believers of the faith. In September 1090, Yusuf deposed King Abdallah of Granada and his brother in Malaga and sent them as prisoners to Morocco, where Abdallah composed his autobiography a few years later, an important source of information for this period. When Yusuf seized Cordova in March 1091 and prepared to besiege Seville, Al-Mutamid appealed to Alfonso VI to rescue him. Alfonso attempted to relieve Seville, but was unable to prevent the city falling to the Almoravids in November 1091. Al-Mutamid ended his days as a prisoner in Morocco, perhaps not herding camels, but not much better. He was able to continue his hobby of writing poetry, including the following lines. Quote, I was the ally of bounty and the lord of generosity, a friend of the people's souls and of their spirits. My right hand was always ready to bestow boons and to snatch lives of foes in fierce affray. My left hand would grasp the rein of fiery steeds and hold them firm among the clashing spears. Today I am a captive in the throes of poverty, exposed to ills and fevers, with my wings broken. End quote. Meanwhile, the Almoravids conquered most of Al-Andalus, seizing first the cities of Almeria, Mercia and Denia on the southeastern coast, and then in 1094, Badakoth and Lisbon. El Cid led a spirited defence of Valencia throughout the 1090s, but three years after his death, at the age of 56, on the 10th of June, 1099, the city finally fell to Yusuf. The Almoravids now controlled the whole of Muslim Spain, with the exception of Zaragoza. They had achieved virtually all the ambitions of the first part of their campaign to control Muslim Spain. 
The next stage was to use their new territories as a base from which to attack the Christians in the north. Al-Andalus thus became a part of the Almoravid Empire, with its centre in Marrakesh. Local administration was in the hands of Andalusians, but real power was held exclusively by their new masters. The new regime brought drastic restrictions to the freedom which the local Christians and Jews had enjoyed in the times of the Taifas. In 1106, Yusuf passed away of natural causes, it is said, aged in his late 90s, or even 100. He had been the very model of a Muslim ruler, whose vast power and disposable wealth never tempted him from ascetic tastes. He had always worn the woollen garments of a desert herdsman and kept to the Saharan diet of fresh milk, barley cakes and occasional camel meat. Driven by a consistent and genuine passion to promote his version of Islam, Yusuf had led the Almoravid army personally for 45 years. He was succeeded by his son, Ali ben Yusuf, who ably continued his father's leadership. Under their new leader, the Almoravids continued to enjoy military success in Spain, most notably in the Battle of Eucles in May 1108. This confrontation took place just south of the river Tagus, between on the one side the Christian forces of Castile and Leon, led by the only son and heir of Alfonso VI, Santo Alfonses, and on the other side the forces of the Muslim Almoravids under Ali ben Yusuf. The battle was a disaster for the Christians. Seven counts either died in the fray or were beheaded afterwards, and the heir apparent was murdered by villagers while trying to flee. Fortunately for the Christians, the Almoravids were again unable to capitalise on their success in the open field by taking Toledo, appearing to lack the skills in siege warfare required to conquer fortified settlements. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The main political issue in Leon and Castile would be the question of who would succeed the ageing King Alfonso. An assembly of nobles acknowledged Alfonso's eldest daughter, Uraca, as heir to the throne. She had been widowed in 1107, the year before the Battle of Eucles, when her husband, Raymond of Burgundy, passed away. 
seeming to ignore the claim of the son of Uraka and Raymond, King Alfonso sought her a suitable new husband, and in spite of some objections, he settled on the King of Aragon and Navarre, Alfonso I, the battler. The big advantage of this match would be the uniting of all Christian states, except Catalonia, against the formidable threat of the Almoravids. Before the marriage ceremony took place, Alfonso VI died on the 20th of July, 1109, at the age of 79. Despite some personal faults, such as a certain arrogance and his turbulent relations with El Cid, Alfonso VI is considered one of the great kings of medieval Spain, especially for his capture of the city of Toledo. Another remarkable leader of the times was Alfonso I, the battler, 1104 to 1134, who gained his sobriquet by ceaselessly waging war against the armies of the Almoravids. His father, King Sancho Ramirez of Aragon, had been highly successful at strengthening his kingdom, especially at the expense of the Muslim Taifa state of Zaragoza. Sancho died besieging the fortified city of Huesca in 1094 and was succeeded by his eldest son, Pedro. Pedro, or Peter I, 1094-1104, was named in honour of St Peter because of his father's special devotion to the Holy See, to which he had made his kingdom a vassal. Peter continued his father's close alliance with the church and pursued the Reconquista with further successes. In 1096, with the help of his brother, Alfonso, he conquered Huesca after defeating the armies of Zaragoza in the Battle of Alcoraz. The newly won city became the largest in the kingdom and for a period its capital. Alfonso the Battler succeeded to the throne on the death of his elder brother, Peter I, in 1104, and five years later united the crowns of Leon, Castile and Aragon with his marriage to Uraca. By the terms of the contract, their children would inherit all their kingdoms. If there were no children, each spouse was declared the heir of the other. The union of all Christian states, with the exception of the Catalan counties, seemed assured. In reality, however, there were formidable obstacles to any permanent union. The French clergy backed the claims of the son of Uraca and Raymond of Burgundy, Alfonso Raymondes. The new king and queen may well have been able to resolve the problems had they cooperated. Instead, they turned out utterly unsuited to one another. Alfonso the Battler was famously more interested in his military campaigns than in women, while Uraca was vain and capricious. Thus, from the start, the marriage was a sad one, and resulted not in a peaceful union, but in civil war. After four years of on-and-off fighting between the supporters of each side, Alfonso finally agreed to terminate the marriage and concentrate on his crusade against Zaragoza. In 1110, the young new leader of Zaragoza, Abdel Malik was deposed by his subjects, who were unhappy with his apparent willingness to consider accommodation with the Christians. The Almoravids were invited to occupy the city, forcing Abdel Malik to flee, and so the last independent taifa passed under their control.
Alfonso the Butler, in order to attempt the conquest of Zaragoza, appealed to the nobility of southern France. At a council held in Toulouse, French knights were urged to join the crusade against Zaragoza, and Pope Gelasius III, who was travelling through southern France at the time, granted indulgences to the participants. Among those who answered the call were many who had earlier taken part in the First Crusade, including Gaston de Berne. Gaston had been in charge of the siege engines on the attack on Jerusalem in 1099 and became the first crusader to enter the city. He brought not only invaluable experience to the Reconquista, but as a deeply pious man, preferred negotiation and dialogue to violence, and was tolerant of the idea of Muslims practising their faith under Christian rule. The capture of Zaragoza had become an obsession for Alfonso the Battler. The heavily fortified city held a key strategic position on Nova Ebro, and its capture would give access to extensive areas of fertile land and also important trading routes. It would be the culmination of many years of fighting, edging ever closer to the great city by taking individual towns and fortresses along the way, such as Graus, Oesca and Barbastro. The combined Aragonese and Crusader army laid siege to Zaragoza on the 22nd of May, 1118. Eight days later, the troops of Gaston de Berne occupied the suburb of Altabas, leaving only the centre of the city left to take. The situation seemed desperate for the defenders until news arrived that a relief army was on its way. A large Almoravid army, led by the governor of Granada, Abdallah ibn Mazdari soon arrived and managed to break into the city and bolster its defences. Many of the foreign crusaders gave up hope and returned home, but not Alfonso or Gaston de Berne. Although the defences of the city were now stronger, the besieged citizens were fast running out of food and water. The Christian army was also suffering, but were provided for by the Bishop of Huesca, who sold the assets of his church to buy provisions for the soldiers. As the months went on, the siege became a struggle of wills as to who could hold out the longer. Then in the first few days of December, news came to the Christian camp that Ibn Mazdari had died. Alfonso decided this was the moment to attack and take advantage of the low morale of the enemy. All his forces were sent to attack one point in the city wall, the Tower of Zuda. On the 18th of December, the defenders finally capitulated, unable to endure any more the hunger, thirst and in the last weeks the extreme cold. Unlike what occurred in other crusades, the capture of Zaragoza was exemplary in the treatment of the city's population. Some 20,000 Muslims lived in the city. Those who decided to leave were allowed to do so and take with them all their belongings. To those who decided to stay, Alfonso offered the right to freely practice their religion, keep their rural properties outside the city and pay no more taxes than they did before the conquest. The only condition on staying was the Muslims were required to leave the city centre and live in the suburbs in order to reduce the potential threat of any later rebellion. It was an entirely 
pragmatic policy with the intention of minimising economic disruption and preventing the loss of manpower which Aragon so badly needed, but still highly commendable for its degree of tolerance. The king's generosity was remembered for many years by both Christians and Muslims. About a half-century later, a Muslim chronicler, Ibn al-Karabus, described in detail the scene of how the departing Moors were escorted in safety up to the frontier of the Dominion. At the same time, Alfonso the Butler did not hesitate to encourage a rapid Christianization of the city. He made the magnificent Alakafaria Palace his new residence, and repopulated the city centre with men who had participated in the siege. Many more Christians settled in the suburbs, and so within a few weeks the city had expanded notably. According to Joseph O'Callaghan in his book, A History of Medieval Spain, the conquest of Zaragoza of 1118 was an accomplishment almost as significant as the fall of Toledo of 1085. For several centuries the city had stood as the northernmost bastion of Islam within Spain and effectively blocked any Christian advances south of the river Ebro. Now a large area south of the city became available for conquest. Scarcely a generation after their arrival in Spain, the Almoravids were already under pressure from within as well as from the Christian kingdoms. They had never been particularly liked by the local inhabitants of Al-Andalus, outside the limited circles of their most fervent supporters. The leadership may have been sincerely devout, but the rank and file were not, indulging in the luxuries of their conquered lands while failing to do the job they had been called to do, protecting Muslims from the Christians. The initial promises of lower taxes for Muslims never materialised, provoking the first rebellion against their rule in Cordova in 1119. Meanwhile, the persecution of and financial exploitation of the Christian and Jewish communities alienated the non-Islamic population. In 1120, two years after the fall of Zaragoza, Alfonso the Butler laid siege to the ancient city of Calatayud, the second most important settlement of the Taifa of Zaragoza. Alfonso was accompanied by Duke William IX of Aquitaine, an individual with a colourful past. When Pope Urban II made the call for crusade to Jerusalem in 1095, William at first declined, more interested in exploiting the absence on crusade of his neighbour, Raymond IV of Toulouse. He captured Toulouse in 1098, an act for which he was threatened with excommunication. In order to regain favour with the religious authorities, William joined the crusade of 1101, an expedition inspired by the success of the First Crusade in 1099. To finance it, he had to mortgage Toulouse back to Bertrand, the son of Raymond IV. The Crusade of 1101 was a disaster, and most of its participants massacred, but William survived and returned to Europe. He is mostly known to history as a poet, being the earliest troubadour whose work survives. The troubadours were poets who were very popular in the royal courts of southern France, northern Spain and northern Italy, from the late 11th to the late 13th centuries. 
Their songs, written in the language of Provence, that is, the Languedoc, dealt mainly with themes of chivalry and courtly love. The Almoravids responded to the siege of Calatayud by amassing a huge relief army of Muslims from around Al-Andalus, and the two sides met at the Battle of Kutanda. It was a resounding victory for the Christians, and the worst defeat suffered by the Almoravids to date. Afterwards, Alfonso lost no time in returning to besiege Calatayud, which he soon captured alongside all the nearby fortresses. The Aragonese frontier was pushed southwards, virtually within reach of the river Guadalajara, and all hopes of the Muslims to recover Zaragoza were destroyed. The declining strength of the Almoravids became even clearer in 1125, when Alfonso made a celebrated march through Andalusia. The Christians of Granada, the Mozarabs, finding the rule of the Almoravids intolerable, appealed to him for deliverance. Attracted by the prospect of great booty and glory, Alfonso I, with a large force including Gaston de Berne and the bishops of Zaragoza and Huesca, set out from Zaragoza in September 1125. As he proceeded along the coast, bypassing Valencia, Denia and Mercia, he was joined by thousands of Mazarabs in revolt against their Muslim rulers. Alfonso marched across the Sierra Nevada, collecting Christians as he went until Christmas when he set up camp near the city of Guadix, a short distance from his intended destination, Granada. The Almoravids responded by summoning forces from around Al-Andalus to gather in Granada in expectation of an attack on the city. Alfonso reached the outskirts of Granada in January 1126. Although many Mozarabs left the city to join his army, there was no general uprising within. Alfonso wrote to the head of the local Mozarabs, reproaching him for failure to fulfil his promises. The latter replied that with Alfonso's late arrival and the gathering of Almoravids, a surprise attack was no longer possible. Alfonso, lacking the equipment needed to conduct a prolonged siege, departed from Granada and continued his march through the heart of Al-Andalus, reaching nearly as far as Seville, and joined by further Mozarabs as he went along. The governor of Granada led an army against the Aragonese, and on the 10th of March launched an attack near the town of Lucena. He was probably confident of victory, expecting the enemy to be tired from their long march. Instead, his poorly organised forces were no match for the Christians and were completely routed. Turning eastward once more, Alfonso now traced his route back to Zaragoza, arriving back home in June after nine months on campaign. He had not been able to conquer Granada or any other major settlement, but what he did achieve was to gather many thousands of Mozarabs and bring them back to his kingdom. The Anglo-Norman historian Ordericus Vitalis reported that he settled 10,000 Andalusian Mozarabs in the Ebro Valley, which benefited greatly from the population boost. Those who remained in Muslim lands were treated harshly for their lack of loyalty. It is said that thousands were deported to North Africa, where many were compelled to serve the Almoravids in their wars across the strait.
The repression was so severe that the Mazarabs as a group virtually disappeared from much of Al-Andalus at this point. In the early 1130s, Alfonso the Battler achieved yet further military successes against the Muslims. But in July 1134, near the town of Fraga, the veteran commander for the first time suffered a serious defeat at the hands of the Almoravids. He escaped wounded from the battlefield, and the next year fell ill and died. Despite this final setback, Alfonso I of Aragon, the battler, had overall achieved a great deal for the cause of the crusade, to which he had dedicated his life. His greatest success was the conquest of Zaragoza, and the expansion of his kingdom south at the expense of the Almoravids. However, his final act threatened to undo all his hard work. The news this week is that I'm changing the company who I use to host the podcast. Hopefully everything will run smoothly, but in case there are any questions or or problems, feel free to contact me at carl at historyeurope.net or go to the blog www.historyeurope.net or go to the Facebook page, that's facebook.com stroke historyeurope.net. So, thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Next week will be the continuation of the story of medieval Spain. And so until then, have a great week and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.